when I was a little kid, I used to think, oh, like there's only a certain amount of bad stuff you can have. <laughs> and I've had enough. That is a blatant lie. Yeah. <laughs> right. And I was like, so I'm, I'm pretty sure that the rest of my life is going to be amazing. This is Heart of the Story, and I'm Nadine Kenny Johnstone. I'm a writer and a writing coach who helps women develop and publish their memoirs and essays. But most importantly, I'm a human who's always trying to figure out what my soul is saying. Each week, I'll share stories and tips of healing, hope, and following my heart so that you'll feel inspired to follow yours. Hi, friends. Before we dive in today, I want to let you all know what my newsletter community already knows, which is that I am launching another round of Publish the Personal, which is my most popular class that always sells out, where you learn all about publishing your personal essays. But this one is really special because it's podcast edition. So I'm walking students through how to create content for podcasts podcast so that you can get your stories on podcasts. And it's so amazing because you will have guaranteed publication. You, if you sign up for the class, will be on this podcast, Heart of the Story. Yes, you'll be able to read a short piece of yours on this podcast. It's so exciting. It begins April 7th, and we're on Zoom every week for two hours for six weeks. So I hope you'll check it out. Last week, we talked about welcoming in the spring, which is a time of letting go and new possibilities. And that paired with March, which is Women's History Month, really got me thinking about women I admire who welcome in new possibilities with open arms, women who push against the status quo, women who have really embraced many different roles and many different sides of themselves rather than trying to push themselves into one category or mold that society expects of them. And when I was thinking about the women on that list whom I have kind of studied from afar, at the very top is a woman that I am speaking with today who I admire so much because she has done so many different things in her life and has just blown my mind in terms of really showing us the multifaceted talents of women. And in particular, she is a woman who follows her heart. So I'm so excited for you to hear this interview. This week, I am interviewing one of the women I most admire, who also happened to be the doula for the birth of our son. And I could not be more thrilled than to have her on today. Her name is Amy Pooser, and she is here to talk to us about following her heart. So welcome, Amy. Thank you, Nadine. My <laughs> pleasure to be here. Yay. So I was just telling you before we started recording that I was sitting down meditating one day. And after I got finished, I just said, okay, if I had to come up with a list of women that I really respect, admire, and look up to because they have truly followed their heart, 
you were at the top of that list. So let me first just give some background to how we know each other. Sounds good. (laughs) For listeners. So Amy is my husband, Jamie's cousin. And in a just serendipitous turn of events, Amy also happened to be the doula at our son's birth. Amy, though, has been and done many things along the way. And I have just kind of watched in admiration from the periphery, just looking as a woman who's trying to find my own way in the world and looking for models of what that looks like to follow one's heart. I've just been kind of looking on in respect. So Amy, could you just kind of introduce yourself for listeners? How would you describe yourself? Um, I am a mother of five children ranging in age from five to 19. I am an executive president and COO of a company called Convene. And I have a consulting firm, a human capital consulting firm called New Fashioned. And we do executive coaching and leadership search and culture work with high growth companies. And that's sort of the details of how I would describe my work and who I am. Who I really am is somebody who lives life like my hair is on fire. Um, (laughs) I really do it, (laughs) which has its ups and its downs, as you know. Oh, I love that. That's like a perfect description. So take us back to you younger, you can start whatever age, but when did you first start feeling like, okay, I want to live like my hair is on fire, or that's just how I am. Take us back a little bit. Okay. I mean, I never slept my entire life. Um, I really didn't. And from the time I was a little kid, I had a deal with my mom. I was afraid of the dark and I didn't like to sleep. So my deal was that I could stay up with the light on as long as I wanted, as long as I was reading. And so I would literally stay awake all night, pretty much, you know, four or five nights a week reading. And that's, I would say that's the beginning. So what was I, six, seven, eight? That's just sort of continued through high school. I think I pulled more all-nighters doing high school work than any other human I know. I did it in college. And then it, it just expanded and was sort of the way that I did things was like extreme. You know, Mm -hmm. I just really did it and I did it in love. I did it in work. I did it the way that I took things on. And, you know, in Ayurvedic medicine, there's this idea called (laughs) derangement, right? Mm -hmm. You have vata derangement. I think that's what I have, which is like, you know, sort of like all this energy and mental energy and mental thought. I have a lot of physical energy and I can't not live that way. Mm. Yeah. I don't know how to do it. And I do things to ground myself. I meditate twice a day. I work out every day. There are things that I do to keep myself, you know, sane (laughs) largely and Mm -hmm. healthy, but I've tried to live differently. 
like I always say, oh, what I really crave in my life is peace. Hmm. I do not live in a way that creates peace for myself. (laughs) (laughs) But it's so interesting because when I think of you, I think of this energy, but then I do also, I experience the grounded side of you. So (laughs) yeah, yeah. And I think of you as a seeker. I think of you as someone who's really open to learning in many different ways. So what are some of the ways that you might consider yourself a seeker or maybe you identify differently? Yeah. Intellectually, I've always been a seeker. I've always been on an intellectual journey. And I think it was partly because I saw that as a path out of childhood that wasn't always happy. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that was always important to me, but there was a spiritual element to it, even as a kid. So I grew up Catholic and was forced, I will say, to go through and get confirmed and do all the things. And there was something about the ritual of the Catholic church and the incense and all of that, that I loved, Mm -hmm. but that piece sat alongside an ideology that I did not appreciate or agree with. Mm -hmm. And I wanted something to recreate the feelings of the incense and the Latin mass, the parts of it that were so beautiful and aesthetic and created like feelings of transcendence. I really wanted that. So when I went to college One of my majors was religion and I focused on Buddhist studies. And so I started meditating then and I was looking for the thing that created epiphanies, transcendence. That's what I wanted. Buddhist theory didn't do so much of that, it turned out, but I was still always looking for it. So I tried to be a Unitarian. And then finally, you know, I had all my children at home. Mm -hmm. For me, birth, being pregnant and giving birth and doing it in the way that I did was a mechanism of transcendence. Mm. And attending women as I attended you in your birth was a mechanism of transcendence and transformation. That's probably why I had five kids. (laughs) 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 Because I was a transformation junkie. But at some point I'm like, okay, I have to find another way of creating this. And so I did a lot of spiritual work. First, it started, you know, more professionally related coaching school and leadership development work. And then I did something called the Hoffman process. And then I took a far right and enrolled in a two-year women's spirituality apprenticeship. Mm -hmm. And that changed my life. Mm. That totally changed my life because I realized that the magic and the beauty and the transcendence was not external. It was Mm. something I could create in myself. Mm. What are the ways that you create that in yourself? What have you found? I mean, meditation is definitely a way to create it in myself, but I think it's also, it's like having 
all the right inputs Mm. and being in the right mental space, you can create it anywhere at any time. A lot of it is just noticing it's awareness. It's like, there's magic about everywhere, right? It's just, you just have to pay attention and Mm -hmm. appreciate it. And so transcendence is always available to everyone. (laughs) (laughs) You just have to pay attention. And that's what I've learned to do, but I'm always looking for what's the easy access point to transcendence. Uh, Is it music? Is it sex? Is it delicious red wine? Is it an amazing run? It can be any of those things. Thank mm -hmm. God I've learned that it doesn't have to be just being pregnant or giving birth. (laughs) (laughs) It's so true. It's so true. So take us along that journey, like you're doing all of these things intellectually and professionally that the outside world would definitely say is successful. And I'll have you talk about that. And then you're also going on this seeking spiritual path as well. And somehow it led you to doula work. So when did you start getting into doula work? And then alongside that, starting your own company. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Yes. So I was an executive at a young age. My second job out of college, I stumbled into a startup and none of us really at the time really knew what we were doing. And so we all just became the grownups who knew what to Mm -hmm. do. Mm -hmm. And I did that for 10 years and learned a lot about myself. And I had two kids during that time and it was like living two different lives because I was this home birthing, attachment parenting, living on a, an organic farm. And then I would drive two hours into Watertown outside of Boston and I was an executive and the worlds didn't coexist easily together because if you're a home birthing attachment parenting mother, you sleep like two hours a night. And if you're an executive, you sleep two hours a night. It was like, it was not sustainable. I couldn't be the mother I wanted to be. I couldn't be the executive I wanted to be. So I knew I needed to leave, Mm -hmm. but it was heartbreaking because I built that company. It felt like my baby. Mm -hmm. And so I had two sets of babies that I was trying to think about. And my boss, Jonathan Bush, gave me a sabbatical. Mm. And I thought maybe I wanted to be a midwife. I knew that I wasn't going to be an executive. And I was like, well, a doula is a nice like middle path to start. I can't really, you know, just go to midwifery school because I also supported our family. I made all the money. Yeah, Um, Yeah. And so That's why I became a doula because I wanted something else to do. And I wanted to do something that was related to birth. And that's how I did that. I left Athena because of all the reasons I talked about and I couldn't make it all work together. And I knew my executive coach was the one who worked with me for a year and a half to help me 
make the decision to leave, which was yeah. such an agonizing decision. And I wanted to be her. Mm. I wanted to do that for people because I honestly felt like she saved my life. And I wanted to do that for people. So while I was on the sabbatical and doing doula work and doula training, I was also doing coach training. Wow. And then I made the decision that I wasn't going to come back from my sabbatical. I was going to leave. And some of the investors in Athena who had been on our board called me and said, hey, we heard you're in semi-retirement, but will you do that thing you did at Athena for some of our portfolio companies? Mm. And I wanted to say no, because I didn't really want to do that. I didn't want to have a consulting firm. I wanted to just do coaching and I wanted to coach women. I didn't want to coach executives at that time. Mm -hmm. But I followed the thread of serendipity as I do. I'm like, well, <laughs> this thing showed up. I better do it. And that's how my consulting business was born. Wow. I didn't know that. So what happened? What was the executive coach guiding you through or saying to you or allowing you to say to yourself that helped you leave and quote unquote, saved your life. Like what was the magic happening there? Well, so her name is Hillary Illick. I love you, Hillary. <laughs> I call her my foul mouthed fairy godmother. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> she drops F-bombs everywhere. Um, she was so loving. We would do coaching sessions. She's a writer, actually. And she would write everything I was saying. And there would always be lots of hearts and love. And I would say she was doulaing me through that decision. And she mm -hmm. just kept on making it clear to me where I was, mirroring back to me, but also loving me through the process and really teaching me about abundance, right? It wasn't, she was holding my fear, holding my anxiety, but also showing me a world where I didn't have to be anxious where it would all work out. And it did. I mean, she really did teach me about abundance. She really did teach me about magic. She made me believe in it. It's like she infused me with these beliefs. And then that enabled me to make this really tough call. And the first day of my sabbatical, I knew I wasn't going back. Mm -hmm. How so? It was just seeing my kids. I was yeah. like, oh my God, I'm alive. Like, I don't have to twist myself into a pretzel every day. It felt yeah. so nice. Another mentor, Chris Nolan at Athena told me, he said, Amy, just because you can do something mm -hmm. doesn't mean you should. Mm -hmm. And I am someone who can do a lot. And that gets me into trouble mm -hmm. because- <laughs> right. Because mm -hmm. I do stuff where it's like, why are you doing that? I don't yeah, know. Cause yeah. I can. And he taught me about learning that I could have boundaries and that I didn't need to work like that or be like that. And I would still be special and amazing and do amazing things in the world. And in fact, probably be more special and more amazing if I made choices and said, no. Mm-hmm. We could connect on so many levels over that. And I will say more <laughs> I about know. that. 
And I want, though, to learn more about that abundance. It feels so abstract, right? It's like, oh, she was teaching me about abundance, but it feels like this intangible thing. How do we get ourselves to a place where we feel abundant, where we don't have that scarcity mentality that so many of us have grown up with? So what did that look like for you? Like what clicked to help to help you realize that there was abundance? I mean, honestly, I feel like it started with love, right? Mm. Like Hillary loved me Mm. and she has like this gorgeous, like giant heart and Mm. she's so loving. She's a mother of four. She's so loving. And it was just like, there was abundance in our relationship and I had two kids. I thought about how much I loved them. I was so abundant for them. It was like, there was already abundance everywhere. Mm. And so it was noticing that and then somehow shifting my mind about if there's that kind of abundance in love, there's abundance everywhere. Mm. I don't know why it clicked but it finally did because I definitely had a scarcity mentality before that. To me, abundance is about believing that anything is possible. Mm -hmm. And I had created that for myself too. I created a, a company, not just me. I was with a lot of people, but I worked, you know, 15 hours a day for 10 years Mm -hmm. and I had two kids and I did it at home. And I, you know, I was doing all of this stuff that showed me, I was like, look, I can do all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. So Hillary loved me into it and also pointed out, she showed me who I was and what I was doing in the world. And I don't know, I do believe anything is possible. That's been my experience. Mm -hmm. And so then when you did start your consulting company, How did you show up in that space for other people? What were the techniques and tools you passed on to them and have been passing on? That's a great question. It varies so much by person. Sometimes I feel like it's straight up consulting or business coaching where I'm giving people advice about their business. And I feel a little undercover when Mm. I'm doing that, right? (laughs) It's like, well, today I have to be undercover. I can't be my true self. But then sometimes there are these openings. I'm like, okay, I'm going to take it. And (laughs) (laughs) it's showing people a different world, I think, in a different way of thinking about things. So I use my mind, my business experience, and my credibility to then go in and change things from the inside out. And I do that in coaching, but now I also do it as an executive. I have the luck to be in a position where I can actually make a whole company different, Mm -hmm. have us behave differently, have us treat our employees differently. Everybody brings their whole self to work at Convene. Like I can talk about the fact that my daughter has severe brain damage and that's okay. She can be on a video call with me in this company. 
in a lot of companies that couldn't happen. Yeah. So you went from having two kids in Massachusetts. Uh, you were talking about that and then you had your third, but then after that, take us from that point of living in Western mass with the three kids to where you are at now being the president and COO of convene, which is in a very short description, a co-working company and living on Capitol Hill. Oh my gosh, Nadine. Okay. <laughs> you so, can give us the shortened version. Yeah, I'll give you the shortened version. Um, Western Mass had left Athena, built my coaching and consulting business. My first marriage did not work out. Ended that, got into a relationship with someone else who also taught me a lot about abundance which I learned so much from him. And from that relationship, we had two more, well, I had two more children. He also had two more children with me. And it was in that relationship that I ended up working at Convene. And after a little while, he decided that the relationship we had wasn't going to work out. And that was heartbreaking as you would expect, but I didn't let the heartbreak last that long um, because he was right. It wasn't working out. And so there's something about accepting what is. Then the pandemic happened right after. And I got an apartment in New York because I was at convene four days a week at that point. And I got an apartment in Reston, Virginia, and then we were full swing into the pandemic. I never went to the apartment in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, so ended up getting rid of that. And then I got promoted a, a few times at Convene. It was a very tough time for Convene as a company that it's co-working, it's physical meetings. So as you can imagine, that industry really was hurt by the pandemic. What was beautiful about the pandemic for Convene was we built a whole virtual product. So it led to innovation. So we took this terrible experience and made it work for us as a company. And what was beautiful for me as a person was I got to have way more balance than I've ever had in my life because I was in my house all the time. I wasn't traveling. I was with my kids. Quinn, my youngest was at pretty much every call with me for a year. So it was really actually a pretty beautiful time in a lot of ways, as hard as it it was as well. And I also got to move to Capitol Hill, which interestingly, when my daughter Anya was born and she had brain damage, we found a kind of therapy called ABM. It's a way to rewire the brain in some ways. And I used to bring her into DC from Virginia every weekend. And I would have to, you'd have to do a bunch of consolidated therapy. And so I would come in to this amazing therapist, Adrian, and spend the weekend with her, basically. I mean, not overnight, I'd go back and it was, she lived in Capitol Hill. Mm-hmm. And I remember being here with my kids and talking about, oh, I love Capitol Hill. I would love to live here, but I lived with Jim in Virginia. 
And so I was (laughs) never going to live on Capitol Hill. And I was so sad. I would mourn it because I just wanted to be here. And now I live on Capitol Hill in a beautiful (laughs) row house. And, you know, it's a dream. And I commute to convene sometimes, but not nearly as much as I did before. And the CEO of Convene, Ryan Simonetti, is like an amazing partner and a great friend and has completely rehabilitated my idea of what a boss can be like and what a partnership, a work partnership can be like. And now I am working on like finding, you know, my romantic partner equivalent of that in my life. <laughs> Yes, exactly. So this is so interesting because Convene had, like so many other companies during the pandemic, faced real, real challenges. And you are part of the major transformation that it has undergone in the last couple of years. And so it almost at first seems like an impossible task. Like it's a co-working company when no one is working in an office and yet everybody desperately like wants to leave their house a little bit. So what mindset did you have? What did you do to help give it the transformation that it has seen and to help it not only last through the pandemic, but thrive? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. We built a whole strategy, which was called survive and thrive Mm. Um, right after the pandemic hit. We acted faster than any other company in the space. We shut our spaces down first, mostly because we wanted to protect our employees and our customers and had to fire 800 people to save money. And it was dire. That was the survive part. And it just, it went on for so long. I mean, we're still coming out of it, but we did all the things we needed to do to save a lot of money so that we could survive we reorganized the company into SWAT teams. So we sort of took away departments because we didn't have to operate in the same way. People weren't coming into our spaces. So we used it as an opportunity to build capabilities and rebuild the foundation of the company. All the things that hadn't been addressed over time because the company was growing so fast, we got to actually work on. Mm -hmm. which was amazing. We could work on the plane when it was on the ground. We didn't have to work on the plane while it was flying anymore. Mm -hmm. So that was one piece. And then we also had the opportunity to think about, you know, new products and services. And so some of these SWAT teams looked at that and thought about that. The third thing that was amazing was that COVID accelerated all of these trends, which convene now can take advantage of. Convene is the only company that has an end-to-end solution for the future of work. Mm -hmm. We have meetings, physical, virtual, hybrid. We have membership. We have work suites and we have virtual meetings, right? We have all of it. So if you're a CEO now and your company went remote and all your employees scattered across the country because that happened. I mean, you guys scattered yourselves, right? Lots of people scattered in COVID. You can't just expect your employees are going to come back to the office that they had before. You need a solution like Convene, but you don't want to have to put it together yourself. You don't want to have to think about it. And so 
we built it. And why could we build it? It's because of the company, Ryan, as the CEO, has a growth mindset. And he's hired people like me and other people throughout the organization who have a growth mindset. We hire for that. We Mm. hire for people who think about abundance. We hire for people who see challenge and are like, okay, where's the opportunity here? Mm. When you have a whole company of people like that, amazing things can happen. Mm. What are tangible examples of growth mindset, either describing yourself or say you're interviewing someone? What does that look like? How can you tell that someone has it or how do you see it in yourself? Um, I ask people an interview question every time, which is what's the hardest thing you've ever been through and what did you learn about yourself? Mm. And so I screen for growth mindset. I listen to how people talk. Do they sound like a victim or do they sound like someone who took on adversity, met life on its own terms and learned in the process about themselves and their capabilities? And I hire for attitude, values, and raw talent. I hire for grit. Give me someone who's conquered adversity. If we hadn't hired for that all along, the company never would have survived. Mm -hmm. Isn't that interesting? So turning that question on yourself, (laughs) what's the hardest thing you've ever been through and what lessons has it taught you? Um, Well, you probably know my life has had quite a bit of trauma in it. It's had high highs and low lows. It's hard to pick, quite honestly, but I think probably the hardest thing is when I got sick, when Anya, when I was pregnant with Anya, my six-year-old daughter, I got C. diff and she had to be born early. My placenta shut down. I was admitted to ICU. I lost my colon. I went in for an emergency C-section. I knew I was very sick. I didn't know how sick I was. I woke up to the news that my daughter had a massive brain bleed and that I had a colostomy bag. And then, you know, the sequelae of that was that I was in a terrible custody battle for my older kids, which I couldn't travel back and forth to Massachusetts. So I went from seeing those children 50% of the time to seeing them once a month for two days. And my relationship with Jim, my partner was under severe strain. We had to make the decision to take Anya off the ventilator. We didn't have to make the decision. We made that decision. So the first time, oh, I'm going to get emotional. Because I was so sick and I was in intensive care and had C. diff, the first time I saw her was when we took her off the ventilator. So they handed me this baby who I had never seen. And we took her off the ventilator and I was just waiting for her to die. And she didn't die. 
And every day they would bring her to me. And it was like, at any moment, this child can stop breathing. That's what they told us was going to happen. And I didn't want to sleep because I was afraid that when I was asleep, she would die. But she didn't die. And so that was basically a giant show. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, It was a, a tough few years, I would say. And what I learned about myself is like what I already knew, which is I can go through anything. I can deal with anything. No matter what happens, I will deal with it and I will be okay. I think that's so evident in you. When I think of you, I think of someone who is so resilient and has so much grace as well. Thank you. And so there are so many people who might not feel that way, like who might feel like, I don't know. I, I feel not as strong or women who are just like, I don't know if I have that same amount of grit and resilience. Can you build it? How do you, how do you help yourself get that? <laughs> I, so I think it's a muscle. I yeah. really do. And I think when I think about my life and all the trauma that's happened, I think I am so resilient because I've exercised that muscle so many times and I've had guardian angels in my life. You know, I've had these amazing people who have been there for me. And I think you can absolutely build it. It's just like, you just have to believe and love. Like if I had one superpower, Besides resilience, it's love. Mm -hmm. And love is always available to us because even if there's not someone outside of you who loves you, you can love yourself. And when you love yourself and when you're going through whatever the thing is, like you can always make it to the other side. Think about all the examples in history of people who have just been through through it. Right. Mm. And so I don't know, I look around, I get inspired. I, I try and do things to take care of myself so that I have the reserves for the next time that my resilience muscle is exercised. But I really do know at this point that I can like, I don't think that there's a thing that I couldn't handle. Mm. I don't want to. I'm exhausted. <laughs> I don't want to handle anymore. When I was a little kid, I used to think, oh, like there's only a certain amount of bad stuff you can have. <laughs> and I've had enough. That is a blatant lie. <laughs> yeah, right. And I was like, so I'm I'm pretty sure that the rest of my life is going to be amazing. <laughs> it has been amazing. Right. And that's the other thing is like, when I look at my life, even all the hard stuff, I think I've really lived. I've mm-hmm. really lived. Like, I feel like I've already lived like 10 lives and I'm 40. <laughs> you know, it's like, I really lived the shit out of this one. <laughs> 
And what do some of those magic moments look like? Like the self-love and the having lived and having loved others. What are some of those highlight moments for you? What do those look like? Oh my gosh. Well, giving birth to me is like the most magical. I remember when I had Anwen, it was a beautiful birth. It was a water birth and bringing her out of the water, right? Under your own power and looking in her eyes and she's an old soul. And I remember I looked into her eyes and I was like, holy shit, I'm in trouble. (laughs) (laughs) She was looking, you know, perfectly silent, no crying. She just looked at me with these giant luminous eyes. And that's like a dramatic example, but you know how it is with Gio, like my son Quinn, and he grabs my face and touches it. I love you so much. And there's just, it's like, that's everywhere, right? Or in the middle of the night when I can't sleep and I do yoga nidra. And it's like just that deep inner peace. Mm -hmm. It's everywhere. Or when you touch someone's life and then it gets reflected back to you. It's Mm -hmm. like, oh, okay. Like I did that. Yeah. Yeah. And you did that. You were our doula. I remember. (laughs) In case you forgot. (laughs) Um, That was such a magical experience, despite some of the (laughs) medical horrors um, that I had to end up having an emergency C-section, which of course none of us wanted. But it's so interesting because even though it ended with the the C-section. I still think of that birth as such a magical experience. And a huge part of that is because of you, because I felt so held and so supported and I was being seen in a really raw form. Yeah. Um, you were a, a goddess. You were a total <laughs> goddess in that moment. You made me feel that way. And so if you'll let me digress for a second to kind of fill listeners in, I went into labor in 2013. And when I was pregnant, I knew even though my life was conventional in some ways, I had started to feel the seeker in me a bit. And I knew I wanted a midwife and I knew I wanted a doula. But I, I at first, for the first few months, went like just typical Western medicine route. And I remember at my six-month check-in when I realized that this being was actually going to come out of my body and not just live in there forever and become a college kid with a beard <laughs> inside my womb. Like I was like, oh, he's coming out. What do I do? And I asked the doctor, well, okay, so you'll be the one to deliver. And she said, well, it could be me or any of the 10 doctors in our practice. And I was like, no, but they don't know me. You know me. And I had had a high risk pregnancy. Lots of things had happened. And I just, I wanted to feel some sense of support and not a mystery of like, who's going to show up that day. And so I left that appointment and I was like, no, mm -mm, there's got to be a different way. And a friend of mine had gone through a midwife group and my first appointment with them was totally different. First of all, Valerie, my midwife was like basically doing yoga as she was talking to me. And she was just like, 
asking me about me and how I would like the birth to go. And so she mentioned, you know, it's great also if you have the support of a doula, like they were like, bring in all this support. Whereas the other doctors were like, we don't want anybody else in there. And so I somehow had heard that you were doing this doula work. And I felt hesitant at first to ask you because you had so much on your plate already. I didn't want to be a burden. And so when you said yes, I was like, oh my gosh, what a gift. And then also like, oh, she's going to see a lot of me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, nobody besides like my gynecologist had seen that much of me. And, um, and I was like, well, this will bring family real close real quick. But I just remember Jamie and I had a phone call with you in the months before and you're just, your voice was so calming and soothing. And I just knew I would be in really good hands. And I had just seen you at work as a parent in the little like family gatherings we had had. And I could just tell that you approach parenting with such love and also like a lack of defensiveness, like I remember one time at like a barbecue, I don't, I can't remember what was said, but Karina, your oldest daughter, you were like, you're my best teacher. Like you said that straight to her and like without any sarcasm. And I was like, wow, this woman parents in a totally different way. And I want some of whatever she has. Or I remember at one point the little kids were playing and Nico, you're third child was, he was like talking to one of his cousins and they were like kind of disagreeing. And you're like, well, you guys are just going to have to compromise. Right. (laughs) And I was like, yes, this is the way to go. So I just knew that you were a great parent. And anyways, to fast forward, you said, yes, it comes to my due date in May of 2013. We're in Massachusetts and it's 8.50 at night and Jamie and I are watching a movie and my actual due date. And I'm like, well, this isn't happening. And just as I was about to doze off, I feel something that feels like a period cramp. And I'm like, hmm, I don't say anything to Jamie. I'm like, let's see if this happens a couple more times on a kind of regular basis. (laughs) It does. And I'm like, oh, it's happening. And so we called you. And I think you were in Rhode Island at that point. And because we lived an hour away from the hospital where we were going to meet my midwife group, we had to like drive most of the way there and camp out at a hotel in Newton, (laughs) which is, it was not like a romantic, you know, you think, or a dreamy experience, right? (laughs) So like I contracted home for a while, Jamie packs up all this stuff and, uh, (laughs) he's like so practical. He's like taking the garbage out. And I'm like, we need to get (laughs) And so we get to the hotel and along the way, I, on the drive there, I was turned backwards and gripping the passenger seat headrest in a kind of cow position. And I'm going, or no cat position rather. And I'm making this sound, these sounds that I had never made. And I'm going, oh, (laughs) 
Jamie is just like unprepared. They do not talk about this in the birth classes. And so we get to the hotel and I have to pretend when we're checking in as if I'm not having contractions because right. I don't want them to turn us away. And I'm carrying a blue yoga ball. I remember that. Your giant ball. And they're like, what? What is she doing in there? And you met us there. And I just remember the first thing you did, you like pulled out these oils and you massaged my feet. And it was such um, a beautiful gift. I was like, I didn't know how to receive it. And I was just like, wow. Okay. So you set the precedence that I was in good hands, that I was supported. And so I labored a bit more and you were there the whole way. And then when the contractions got really close, as it got closer to dawn, we went to the hospital and it, from there, it just feels like a whirlwind, like a, such a blur of hours. But I do remember just this one moment where you like, I, I think you um, got the bath ready for me and I put on this bedazzled bikini. <laughs> in the bathtub <laughs> and uh like it legit had rhinestones on it I was like where am I going and um and you were just like so calm and and you just you were there every step and when I was doing these awkward weird lunges after the bath you were there and you you knew where to put pressure like on my sacrum and you kept on whispering really encouraging things like you're doing a great job you're a goddess you're a warrior and and you made me feel that way and so when by the time after the emergency c-section when Gio was born I like looked up and I'm like, she's still here. What is she doing? It's been like a full day. I don't even know if you ate, <laughs> but I was just so grateful that you guided us through that whole experience. So very long-winded way of saying, thank you. <laughs> yeah. That was such a beautiful gift for me mm. to be there for you and to be there for my cousin. Yeah. And to be there for Gio, it was so beautiful. Thank you for giving me that opportunity. Oh my goodness. Yeah, Jamie, I think, oh, here is the way that you really helped him. So when I was having this C-section, because it was an emergency one and they had to whisk me in, when they started cutting, I could feel it. And I was yelling that I could feel it. And so suddenly the anesthesiologist is just pumping drugs. And I'd wanted a natural birth, go figure. And they're like pumping drugs. So by the time that Geo came out, I'm in like a very weird place. And they wished Geo to do all of the checks on him. And so Jamie is there not knowing how I am not having not heard Gio cry. And he said to me, what I didn't know is that he went out somewhere, maybe in the hall and you were there and he just started crying, but that he was so grateful that you were there because you were like, they're okay. They're okay. I don't know what you said, but it was supportive. Do you remember this? I do. I do. (laughs) So I just think, you know, in terms of guardian angels, I'm so grateful that you were there. So grateful. Thank you. Mm. Um, So, oh my gosh, the time has flown. 
But um, can I just ask one last thing about that birthing and doula work? Like what, what little lessons did that teach you or what joys has that brought you? Oh gosh. Women are amazing. (laughs) And what we do is so incredible. And that work is so sacred and it's such an honor and the way so many babies are born is not that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wish birth were different because I think as a woman, I first understood how powerful I was when I had a baby at home. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wish that for every woman. I wish it for you know her partner watching her and I wish it for the babies being born. I don't know. I mean, I get it's an object lesson in love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'll just ask you three kind of rapid fire questions and they could be one word. They could be quick, silly. It doesn't matter. What is healing you right now? <laughs> I was like, I can't say that. Um, yeah, whatever. <laughs> I can't say what's healing me. (laughs) You can hint at it if you want to. I think that was probably enough of a hint. (laughs) We can just say that Amy's dating right now. So I think that's where your brain is going. (laughs) Um, What's giving you hope right now? My kids always give me hope. Mm. And... What is a way that you have recently followed your heart? Um, Though I really want to be married someday, I ended an engagement because it didn't feel right, exactly right. And now I know that the right love will be there for me. Mm -hmm. I love that. Thank you for coming on today. This has been just an honor, a gift. And if anyone is interested in learning more about you or Convene or your consulting company, where can they find you and all the things? Convene.com, LinkedIn, uh, the New Fashioned website, newfashion.co. Yeah. Yeah, I'll put all Find me, people. I would love to talk to you. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I'll put all the links in the show notes. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This was such a joy. Thank you. Oh my gosh. Thank you. I love you. It was amazing. And I'm (laughs) so glad you're doing this. I love you too. Thank you. Isn't Amy amazing? She is so incredible. She is just multi-talented, so wise, so inspiring. She is joyously infectious. (laughs) I hope you'll check her out. I'll put all of her links in the show notes so you can learn more about her and new fashioned and convene. But I want to thank you for always coming back to listen and to hear these empowering stories. I think that you are powerful beyond measure, my dear listener. And I hope you remember that today. I hope from the conversation that I just had with Amy that you remember that most of the things that we're searching for are within us, that the love 
and abundance is deep within us. And I hope that you remember that that love and abundance is within you and that you feel that today. So thank you, Michelle Rado, my producer, who also has her own podcast called Daring to Tell, which you should check out with great interviews with writers. And remember everyone, every heart has a story and every story has a heart. See you next week.